Right. Good evening, everybody, and thanks to this, the latest of our European Institute series of uh, public events. We're delighted, as you can see here, to have uh, Sophie Pedder from The Economist. She just told me that she's been living it up in Paris since 2003. That seems to me to be a lot of two-star Michelin meals, at least. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you later for your list of bonnes adresses. And as you can see from the title, she's going to be talking about the, the French Revolution. Now, curiously, we had a, a French Revolution event exactly a year ago, and that tells you that it's now two years on from the French Revolution prompted by Macron. It's going to be an intriguing time seeing what happens next in the light of what's happened over the last few months, in, in particular the sudden emergence of those in yellow jackets, the gilets jaunes, which is something I don't think anybody saw coming until suddenly it happened, but I'm sure Sophie's going to explain this to us. Now, somewhere on this screen, I can't quite see it because of the angle, it should say LS, hash LS, hashtag LSE France for anybody who wants to engage in Twitterizing. It's up to you. And without further ado, allow me to give a LSE welcome to Sophie, who's going to tell us all about what Macron is up to. Thanks. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you for this invitation to, to come and speak. Um, it's, uh, I was coming over from Paris on the train this morning, and I re remember that the last time I'd been to the LSE, I have to confess, was in 2015, so quite a long time ago, and I came, it was in October, one autumn, and I came over here because there was this young economy minister who was giving a speech at the LSE uh, at an event organized by the European Institute by Maurice Fraser who must have been very prescient at the time because this uh, guy, who I came over to follow because I was going to interview him on the way back, uh, was named Emmanuel Macron. So it, and in, a, in a funny way, I think what was so striking about that moment was not that uh, what, what he said, but it was the fact that when I arrived at the building, there was a queue of students all the way down the street uh, waiting to come, and, um, to come and listen to him speak. So... It was, in a way, that, that evening in the LSE was one of the first moments that I realized how much interest he was generating, even as economy minister um, uh, overseas. So two years later, this unknown 39-year-old who had never stood for electoral office, not at any level at all, upended French party politics and seized the presidency at his first attempt. And that's why I used the title, uh, the word revolution, in the title of my book. And then six months after, he was, after it was published, the Gilets jaunes protest movement broke out. And uh, I started to wonder what I had written. Um, on the first Saturday last November, a group of protesters uh, made their way towards the Elysee Palace, vowing to invade, invade the seat of the presidency, uh, crying out Macron démission. Another weekend, another group of protesters stole a forklift truck from a building site and they rammed it through the gates of a ministry. And bodyguards had to evacuate the minister uh, via an emergency exit. But at least I got the title right. I thought I would talk to you this evening about three things. One of them is why uh, I stick by the word revolution and what I, what I think happened in 2017. The second one, I want to talk a little bit about the Gilets jaunes and how uh, I think this movement, <laughs> what, what this movement was all about and how it came to present such a huge challenge uh, to the Macron presidency. And finally, I want to look at um, what next. Uh, 
and why France, in the run-up to this European election, and France is voting on Sunday, really does present, I think, uh, represent the test case of whether or not the centre, the Liberal Democratic centre, can hold against uh, the forces of populism and nationalism, which are threatening us all. So revolution, what did 2017 mean uh, and say about France? I would say three things, which I, I summing up as the, in, as, as the three R's. First, the R for risk. We all thought France was a pretty conservative place, um, rebellious, obviously, at times, with a long and disrupted history, but ultimately pretty keen to preserve the status quo, hold on to the acquis, fairly fearful about change. Um, and then in 2017, the French elected a newcomer to politics. He wasn't even 40 years old at the time. He never held elected office, as I said. He was lucky, that's for sure. And the election favorite that year, as you all know, Francois Fillon was damaged in a, in a corruption scandal in January. So it was just three months before the vote, and it opened the way for Macron. But I would say he also created his own luck. He built that party en marche a year before the election. It was the result of months of secret preparations with a very small, close-knit group of millennial advisors. And then he quit government in 2016, at a time when it was absolutely not guaranteed that there would be any alternative path for him outside government. People said, you know, you will just disappear if you, if you leave. And finally, in, in November that year, he announced that he would run for the presidency, even though his, his boss, his mentor, Francois Hollande, was president, who he'd worked for, so hadn't even made up his own mind. And Hollande said later of Macron, he betrayed me methodically. Well, it was either betrayal or it was risk-taking. But in any case, he took the risk to create those opportunities, I would argue. And I think then the French took a, a risk on Macron. And it's sometimes hard with retrospect to recall just how extraordinary that was. I can remember in January that year when people would say, well, you know, maybe Macron's got a chance of presidency, possibly, given what's going on. But even if he is elected president, who on earth is he going to govern with? He doesn't even have a single member of parliament. Of course, Macron was finally and ultimately elected in the second round, partly because of the vote to keep out his opponent, Marine Le Pen. So his first round score, as you know, was only 24%. But he nonetheless stopped voting, and what took place in France in the spring of 2017 marked the greatest wholesale clear-out, I think, of the political uh, party establishment that the country had seen in half a century. So risk was one R. The second one was really renewal. And here I don't just mean in the Lysée Palace. Obviously, it was a novelty to have uh, somebody 39 years old sitting in the, in the Elysee Palace. But I spent quite a lot of time in the National Assembly. And one of the most striking things to me is that when you go now and you sit in for, for, a, for a sitting, it's the look of the National Assembly has changed hugely. If you take uh, just the feminization, there are 45% of deputies are women now, up from 26% in the, in the previous parliament. Three quarters of the deputies who sit now were not sitting in the, pre, in, the, in the outgoing legislature. And if you look at the age profile, it's been a dramatic change. In the outgoing le legislature, there were 96 deputies out of 577 who were aged over, the, over 70. Um, in the new coming, incoming one, just 13. And the same for the, for the, for the younger deputies. 28 of them coming in were less than 30. 
So you did have that sense that an entire political class, almost politicians with a sense of entitlement to their seats who just represented themselves at elections time and time again, um, had had been cleared to one side. And there was also a renewal in sense of the sorts of people and the sorts of backgrounds people were coming from. The typical route to a seat in Parliament in the old days was, you know, as a parliamentary assistant or as a, an activist in a political party. And the new lot were from all sorts of walks of life. Um, during the campaign, I met a farmer in Brittany who now sits in Parliament, a high school teacher in Strasbourg who was working um, with kids in quite a deprived area, an entrepreneur in Lyon who ran his own business. None of them had been in politics before. They weren't interested in politics. And they're all now sitting as deputies in En Marche. So I would say renewal, risk first, renewal as the second feature that, uh, of, of 2017. And the third is reform. Again, one of the things I've noticed, I've, I've been in France, as uh, Ian said, for, since 2003, and this is, I, I've covered four different presidents, starting with uh, Jacques Chirac, then uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, and then Francois Hollande, and now Macron. And I think what you notice over, the, over, over time is that there is a tendency uh, during elections to promise something, uh, and then another tendency, equally important, once uh, a party's in government or a candidate is in the presidency, uh, to go back and, and switch and to put something else in place. And it's, it, it undermines the sort of credibility of the political class uh, and makes it very difficult then to, make, uh, and to, to, to actually engage in serious reform. But what was so striking about 2017, I think, is that Macron laid out very clearly in that manifesto exactly what he would do. And then to everyone's surprise, once he was elected, he actually went about and did it. Now, you, you, because of what happened after that, you, last year, one, one forgets actually that the first 18 months of the presidency, I think, were, were a remarkably smooth implementation of a lot of those policy measures. If you take the labor market reform, it's one of the most interesting ones. Um, he announced it in the manifesto. He said exactly how he was going to do it. He was going to pass it by decree, so not using um, a normal legislative process. Uh, And the whole idea was to try and encourage employers to take people on, especially young people who end up on short-term contracts so much of the time because employers don't like to employ people permanently because of all these uh, labor market rules. And he said he would do that, and there were strikes, there were, there were demonstrations. It, at some point, people felt that, or commentators suggested that this might have been Macron's uh, moment that would test him, would he give in to the street, and he held, it, he held his nerve, and the reform went through. And I was looking at some labor market statistics um, just this week to see whether there was any sign that this is beginning to show through or in, in job creation in France. And it's the, the most striking one to me is that the share of permanent contracts in all new hiring has shot up to 50%, which is an all-time record in France. And that is an extraordinary figure because that is exactly addressing the sort of problems that had caused so many young people to feel shut out of the job market. So I think there are these little micro signs here and there that even in a quite difficult economic context, some of the, uh, those early reforms of Macron's are beginning to work. To work. And there were others, there are other things he's done, SNCF reform, uh, education reform. Um, But the key thing about it all is the the sense of legitimacy, that if you've announced something before, 
uh, that you have secured an electoral mandate for it and that then it becomes uh, uh, easier to push it through and to secure, crucially, the uh, backing of public opinion. And if you look at public opinion polls during the time of the labor market uh, reform or even the SNCF strikes, uh, over time, more people uh, backed the government, uh, whereas in 1995, during the most, uh, the most difficult strikes that Jacques Chirac had to deal with, uh, it actually went the other way around. So I would say that thanks to these sorts of changes, you had a, both a shift in the perception of France, but you also had a real uh, sense that um, there were things that France was beginning to sort of unblock some of those uh, things that had, had, had held, held it back uh, in the past. And, and the, the mood in the country changed. Um, Michel Welbeck, I think, had the best line on this when he said that uh, Macron's election was a sort of form of national group therapy, that it was a sort of self-medicated dose of, of optimism for France. Well, that was the first 18 months. And then the Gilets Jaunes came along. Now, this, I think, has been without any doubt the most difficult and serious crisis of Macron's presidency, it has already run in, become the longest social protest movement in France since 1968. It's longer than 1968 since the student uprising. It has seriously damaged his uh, credibility, his ability to govern. Um, and it's also questioned, in some ways, the legitimacy of representative democracy in France. I've spent a lot of time over the past six months on roundabouts. Because these are the spaces that protesters originally gathered, and I spent a lot of time talking to Gilets Jaunes in, from Normandy in the north to Provence in the south, trying to understand what this movement's all about. It's complicated. It's not easy to say what, it's, what, it's, what it is, because it's unlike, I think, any protest movement France has known before. Obviously, the country isn't a stranger to street protest and demonstrations, but it's not structured. The Gilets Jaunes are it's not a monolithic movement, it's not political, it's not organized. It doesn't behave like a student protest where you have uh, meetings and votes. Uh, it goes on every single weekend. It doesn't stop during holidays. It's been going on for 27 consecutive weekends, the last uh, one being on Saturday, every single Saturday, even during Christmas and New Year. And it doesn't behave like a union either, so you don't, you can't, there are no sort of organized demands or uh, leaders which uh, can, can arrange protests along routes that the police has, have organized. It's amorphous, it's not monolithic, it's very volatile, and it's extremely difficult, for the, been extremely difficult for the government, government to talk to. It's also been such an unusual protest movement because it's been both existed in physical space on the, on the roundabouts, but also in cyberspace. And Facebook has been its, its sort of enabling mechanism. It's spread because of, uh, because of Facebook, a sort of mobilizing tool that's enabled it to take advantage of, of, uh, of, 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 an, of nationwide feelings. It, if it had a unifying force, it wasn't anything ideological. I would say it was rage. Rage about not being respected, rage about indifference, rage about the elite's perception of uh, the sorts of problems that they were, they, they were um, experiencing. And it found itself incredibly powerful symbol in the yellow jacket because uh, French law requires all motorists to carry one uh, in the case of a breakdown. And in a way, this was a sort of breakdown. It was just a different sort. And one French newspaper, I think, summed it up very well when they said, the Gilets Jaunes movement is really the revenge of the invisible. 
Now, some of those roundabouts, which I've spent time talking to Julie Jean, were I felt the mood was very festive. It felt like a sort of a social moment to get together. It was people who were barbecuing sausages or standing around the fire in the winter. And it was a sort of, there was a social role to what was happening. Um, it was very, roundabouts were important because they were exactly that sort of intersection of rural and urban life where you're not, you're not really living in rural, it's not agricultural, this isn't an agricultural population, but it's certainly not a, a city-dwelling population. It's exactly where uh, the two coincide and people depend very much on their cars to get about and end up on these roundabouts which have uh, sprung up in France all over the place. It's what Christophe Guy calls peripheral France, and, and I prefer to think of it a sort of in-between France. It's, it's, it's not urban, it's not rural, and it's not really even suburban. It's really just people living literally and metaphorically on the edge. And this was originally the key, I think, to the Gilets Jaunes protest, that these were people who were dependent on their cars and angry that the elite was putting up the carbon tax on the price of fuel at the pump and a sense that they felt that those who were making policy in, in, in Paris had no understanding of the sorts of lives that they were leading. Um, and then, of course, the protest movement broadened out into something even more personal than that, and it became almost a rebellion against Macron himself, against his Jupiterian style, against what they were perceived as arrogance and disrespect for ordinary people and what was very much felt as government policy in favor of the rich. When I was in Evreux in uh, Normandy talking to Julie Jean one afternoon, uh, one of them told me, we want Macron to know what it smells like at the bottom. So in a way, I think Macron has faced a mirror image of the grassroots movement that he built to lead his own insurgency against the political establishment. What happened at the end of last year was a, indeed a sort of resurrection if not a resurrection, an insurrection against those in power, but this time the target was him. Why has the Gilets Jaunes movement been so powerful? If you look at the numbers, after all, there were only 280,000 on the streets on that very first uh, day in November 2017, uh, 2018 last year, sorry. One answer, of course, is violence, uh, which brought the troubles of peripheral, peripheral France right onto the streets beneath the grandest apartment buildings in Paris, it really did shake the establishment. One of the striking things about the Gilets Jaunes, I think, has been the way in which a sort of sense of, of, of violence, uh, loathing, has been somehow legitimized uh, or encouraged by this movement. You have seen effigies of Macron being decapitated with mock guillotines, an extraordinarily personalized sense of uh, discontent which centers on, on him. And because in so many ways the French Fifth Republic uh, Constitution uh, focuses everything on the presidency, he has become uh, the sort of uh, a figure that has drawn all that criticism right into his, his very personality. And then the violence has been Ill encouraged and enabled by a lot of the, uh, the infiltration that's taken place uh, on the weekend demonstrations by either ultra-left ultra, ultra, ultra and ultra-right, actually. It's really been a mix of, of the two um, that have... I don't think it's possible to say that the gilets jaunes, there are pacifist gilets jaunes, and then violent gilets jaunes, there's a real blurring of lines between those who are sort of egged on by some of this much more organized violent elements that brought a lot of, of destruction onto the streets of Paris. 
Bordeaux, Nantes, Avignon, many other regional cities. Um, in the street where our office is based in Paris, we were, um, this was in March, so only just over a month ago, there was a, a resurgence of violence. At one point we thought the violence had, had died down and then it came, it came back in a, in a, in a, big, a big weekend of violence. And uh, the bank on the corner of, of our street was burned. There was an arson attack while the, a lady in the first floor with her baby were, was trying to escape. So, you know, when I talk about violence, I really mean quite sort of unbelievable level of, of, of attacks, even on, on, on buildings with people in them. And then there was the, is the length of time it's gone on. So every Saturday for 27 weekends, um, that's a long time, and it's something that has almost become a kind of a, a, a sort of backdrop and a drumbeat to, to life in France. And the most important thing, the reason it's been so, so threatening, I think, to, to Macron has been the, um, the level of public support. It's quite amazing. When you look at the polls right back in the end of last year, 73% and, and even higher in some polls of the French either supported or sympathized with the Gilets Jaunes movement. And even in those first couple of weekends when it was very a lot of violence in Paris uh, and, and other cities as well, that support was not dented. So people felt there was a, just, a justified um, sense of grievance on the part of the, of the Gilles Jaunes movement. Uh, and they felt that, they, that, that their uh, complaint, perhaps not the method of expressing that complaint, but that the complaint itself really was uh, legitimate. I don't... I certainly can't claim to have foreseen in my book the emergence of the Gilets Jaunes and not the, and not the form that the anti-Macron protests um, took, ultimately. I think I expected it to be uh, expressed in terms of a vote for the extremes, the, the sort of mainstream political, uh, not the mainstream, but the established political uh, parties on the, on the far right and the far left. But what I did have, or did write, was an entire chapter called Fractured France. And the, my starting point was that in the first round of the presidential election in 2017, 48% of uh, voters backed one form or other of, of, of anti-establishment or anti-European or anti-populist um, uh, uh, candidate. And that there is, and there was, there still is, a very clear geographical divide. I talked about these sort of in-between zones, and I think sometimes if you go to one city, you can see it very clearly how this works. In the center of a city like Lyon, right in the very middle, the center, city center and, and the, the city proper, 84% uh, of people in the first round voted for Macron. Okay, so this is Macron's absolutely sort of a home territory. Not his home territory, but comfortable Macron territory. If you drive out of Lyon, you head to the east. After about 20 kilometers, you get to, you suddenly switch to a zone where, where Marine Le Pen got a majority, very small majority, but she got a majority in the first round. And then if you go all the way to a village called Briore, 70 kilometers east of Lyon, and you're heading at this point towards the Alps, a little tiny village, one street, you know, the boulangerie and a car mechanic, and that's about it. And she got 61% in the first round, in the first round. So that's against, you know, 12 other candidates. And I think this is the, this is the geography that we're seeing. And what I wrote, did write in that chapter was that this fracture running through France between the prosperous and the confident metropolitan centers and the fragile towns and the deserted rural areas will be one of the greatest challenges to the Macron presidency in the coming years. Well, that's where we are. The question now is what happens next? Where does Macron go from here? Where does France go from here? And France being, I think, uh, a real test for whether a liberal centrist uh, president and government can hold that, that ground against 
the populist, populist forces. There are two things, that, two ways that could go. I think you can uh, imagine a scenario quite easily in which, because of the gilets jaunes and because of the damage to Macron's credibility, um, that he finds it very difficult to recover that sort of reformist ambition. He doesn't think he's finished with what he wants to do with France and the changes he wants to bring in, but the street has shown in a way that he, it can push around a sitting president. Uh, he has ceded ground, um, and it, the sort of sapping, damaging effect of having these constant weekend demonstrations is probably going to be a big one on Saturday again because of the election, uh, European election voting being the next day, um, is just a sort of damaging background to him being able to carry out policy. And in a way, rather than marking the defeat of populism, which some of us thought it did in 2017, Macron's presidency could end up heralding its revival and rather than restoring faith in centrist, centrist politics, it could entrench a crisis of confidence in them. It's very, last night I was at a National Front, now named National Rally, um, uh, meeting in, just to watch uh, as part of my coverage of the, of the European election. And it's very difficult for a candidate like Macron or even his lead candidate, Nathalie Loiseau, who do rely on the tools of reason and argument and fact-based evidence to try and counter uh, what becomes uh, entertainment politics. Uh, if you go and watch a rally like I did last night, it's, all, but it's entertainment, it's stand-up comedy, it's one-liners. Um, Marine Le Pen uses this line. She says, um, Europe was founded on coal and steel. Well, there's no more coal and there's no more steel. And that is supposed to be a sort of proof and demonstration that Europe, therefore, has not delivered. Uh, it's very, she has a new candidate, lead candidate, Jordan Bardella. He's 23 years old, but he's incredibly slick. Um, he's managing to come across very well and bring young people into, to, towards the movement. And she has better structures. She has better local networks across France than En Marche, because En Marche didn't exist two, two, three years ago. And in some ways, some of the structures that emerged during the election to uh, create a, a platform for Macron have, have faded away since then. And one of Macron's advisors said to me when I was um, doing research for this book, he said, it was a quote that's just stayed in my mind because it just uh, it, it, it sends a sort of shiver down one's spine. He says, the really scary scenario is that Macron was a one-shot pistol. He destroyed the entire party political system, but if he now fails, we're left with only the crazies. And Macron's not alone, uh, not isolated only in France, he's isolated in Europe. His efforts to shift the German position on various subjects, not including the Eurozone budget, have got, he's run into a lot of difficulty. Um, Mac Macron has not found a partner in Angela Merkel that he is hoping for. She started to talk about confrontations uh, between the two of them. And it's, in reality now, a much more lonely place, I think, for a liberal Democrat uh, trying to hold the center ground. But what if, instead, the Gilets Jaunes acted as a sort of wake-up call? Let's try and look at a couple of figures to see what's happened to the movement. I talked about 280,000 people being on the streets at the beginning. There, are now, there were 16,000 on the streets on Saturday. If you go to roundabouts in France, if you try and drive down the motorway, uh, the payage are not occupied. The roundabouts aren't occupied either. The sort of rural grassroots movement, semi-rural, on-the-edge movement, has definitely faded away. 
If you ask people now whether they support the Gilets Jaunes movement, the figures drop from 73% that I mentioned earlier now to, down to about 50. You could say that's still quite high. It is quite high. But if you ask them, do you want the Gilets Jaunes protests to stop, 60% say now, now say yes, up from 31% last year. It's also really interesting to me that the Gilets Jaunes, which was, had a lot, of, lot to say about, uh, they had a lot to say about the failure of representative democracy and of the way in which uh, the people were able to express their voice in France through political uh, institutions, have failed to transform themselves into a political party of any, of any significance. In all the polls, there are three Gilets Jaunes lists standing at the European elections out of the 34 in France. Three. Uh, between them, they don't manage 2% of the vote. So what you saw as a, as a social protest movement has not made that transition towards anything that looks like a durable political force. And if you're trying to look at this at the same time as reasons to believe that Macron might actually have a chance of recovering the agenda, it's important to remember that uh, for all that the Gilets Jaunes have done to destabilize his presidency, he still has that same majority in the National Assembly. That hasn't gone away. He still runs one of the very few single-party governments in Europe. His popularity is low. It's about 30%, but it's recovered. It's gone back to where it was before the Gilets Jaunes movement. And it's still higher than where François Hollande's popularity level was at the same point in his presidency. So, of course, it would be a political blow if Marine Le Pen comes top, and I think there's a very real risk that that would happen. But don't forget the Marine Le Pen scored 25% at the European elections last year. She came top then, last year, last time in 2014. She came top then. Uh, so this isn't so much of a rise of Marine Le Pen as a reassertion. It's a midterm vote. You would expect her to do well. And the reality, I think, is that what happened in 2017, going back to what I was trying to describe as a sort of, uh, uh, as a revolution, that the political, the upending of the party political system has stuck. The, the Socialist Party, a, a great institution uh, that has been played a major role in French politics um, through a, a large part of the 20th century, is a shadow of its former self. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary, but the Socialist Party, if it doesn't get 5% at the elections on Sunday, won't get a single seat in the European Parliament. I mean, that, that, is, that is, I think, just very telling about what's happened. Um, the Republicans are in not quite as bad position, but pretty, pretty dire too. And finally, I think, you know, there has been a real effort by uh, the president to shift the tone and try and listen. And this has been part of this uh, exercise called the, the Great National Debate, which has taken place over the last uh, uh, three months. He's personally take, spent 92 hours in town hall meetings. And when I went to one of them in Evry, south of Paris, it was supposed to last for a couple of hours. It was scheduled to start at 6, and it was going on to 8 in the evening, and we were in a sort of annex of the town hall. It, it laid out, the room was laid out as a town hall meeting in the round, and Macron sat there on a plastic chair, and when he walked into the room, there was absolute silence. Uh, it, was a, it wasn't hostile, I wouldn't say, but it was definitely skeptical. And by the time he finished, he sat there, he took his jacket off, rolled up his sleeves, started taking notes and asking questions, answering questions. By the time he finished, it was midnight, uh, six hours later. And people were, I think, just astonished. It was the, you know, the Jupiter had kind of climbed down off that, off that throne and uh, had started to listen. And I think that that exercise, 1.9 million people have filled in online contributions, uh, that exercise has really been a change in, sh in, 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 in tone. 
So I think there is a chance. It's a difficult time. It's a decisive moment, and his legacy is finely poised. There's a very real risk that Marine Le Pen will come top, and there are plenty of voters who want Macron to tell Macron exactly how angry they are. But I think what is happening in France matters uh, not just to the French and not just to France. It matters to all of us. It really is a country that encapsulates that the battle, the struggle, which is defining Europe's struggle, really, between the liberal democratic centre and the forces of populism. And in my view, I think in the run-up to the next presidential election remains the absolutely central test case for whether the liberal centre can hold or whether, in the end, populism will prevail. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sophie, for a fascinating insight into how it all unfolded. I should say that uh, Sophie has kindly offered to sign books later if anybody wants the, the autograph. And after hearing that uh, introduction, I'm sure more will want it than previously. What I propose to do is to start with a couple of questions from me. But I want you to prepare your own questions. Wait for the microphone to come when, when, it, when it's your turn to, to speak and say who you are. Make, pose a succinct question rather than give a speech because there's plenty of people who want to be asking things. Well, let, let me start, Sophie, by asking about something you mentioned towards the end there, the Grand Débat. The outcome of the Grand Débat was sadly intercepted by the, the, the fire at Notre Dame. And then rather than giving his, his television speech to say what his response was, he had this marathon press conference. I suspect you were there. The press con I, I happened to be in Bordeaux when, when the, the press conference was going on, although I didn't watch much of it because it's a very nice wine bar next door. <laughs> so tell us, what was the verdict on the press conference, his response to the Grand Débat? What I read was not particularly attractive. It, it, he, as you said, it was, uh, the timing was dreadful because um, the, the fire itself was dreadful, but in Notre Dame it shook, 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 shocked and shook everybody. But uh, it was particularly bad for him because he ha it meant that all the proposals he'd made uh, or he was about to announce were all leaked out, and that slightly sort of spoiled the, the, the surprise effect. I think that it, you know, it's, always, it's always difficult with an exercise like that. You've got uh, expectations... Uh, inflated because you have taken part in such a, a sort of a, a intensive, time-intensive exercise. You've got a big crisis that you're trying to diffuse with a really unusual tool, which is having a debate. I mean, when people started, when, he, when Macron first announced he was going to do this debate, there was a lot of skepticism about it. Um, there was a sense that you can't, how are you going to diffuse a social protest by having a conversation? Um, and it was only as it went on and as you saw the amount of time he was investing in it and, and, and the number of people who were taking part um, that you felt that actually there might be something in this. There is a sort of uh, almost, there was almost a therapeutic value in, in having all these, 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 these um, uh, grievances aired. But what on earth were you going to do with them? Because a lot of the, the demands were completely contradictory. Everybody wanted more public services and everybody wanted to pay less tax. And that was the sort of central one. So it was inevitable in some respects that Macron was never going to be able to quite square that circle. Um, and uh, no compromises were going to be enough um, to, to satisfy everybody. So I think it's, you know, some of the, some of the things he, he announced were straightforward tax cuts. Everyone likes tax cuts. Um, some of the things were gimmicky and quite questionable. For example, he, he announced the, uh, that he was going to abolish ENA, which is... Uh, 
uh, it wasn't specifically a demand that you heard on roundabouts, but certainly people on roundabouts don't like NARCs. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, it is a way, it is a sort of, in some respects, answering uh, that kind of uh, populist anger about the, the way in which the elite is, tra is trained or um, educated in France. But it's, it's also very gimmicky because it's, you know, in so, so many respects meaningless um, to abolish something which has actually, in some respects, have a lot of, has a lot of uh, value. So, uh, Especially when he's an inspector de finance himself. Well, he's, exactly. He's an anarchist himself and uh, you know you are still going to need some form of, 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 of uh, sort of education for those who are going to head into the higher echelons of the administration so it's, that did feel quite gimmicky. It's, it's difficult though uh, and, and I think there were always going to be disappointments and people, people did feel some sense of disappointment but I would go back though less to the announcements than to the sort of process. You know, it, it, it's a really interesting way to go about uh, at least sort of creating some time, a bit of space, a bit of, um, you know, a sort of forum and a way for people to express what makes, what's made them angry, which despite the fact that the announcements weren't dramatic or, uh, you know, um, perhaps as eye-catching as you might ideally expect them to be, you nonetheless have the sense that the process was, was helpful for the French to, 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 to get, get some things off their, off their chests. But at the same time, the, the bits I caught of that press conference were him saying, it's lonely at the top. That, that resonated for me. And I'm going to continue on the path I've set out. So that was almost resisting. Yes, I mean, I think that what, what, I, what I took away from that was I, I, I am not going to change my entire policy based on the fact that the Gilets Jaunes disagree with me on economic strategy, that I was elected with a particular um, set of policies. I think that it was necessary to do things like abolishing the wealth tax. Uh, I said I was going to do that in the campaign, and I'm going to stick by it because I don't think, you know, France has already got higher taxation than any other country in Europe, and I don't think it's healthy or useful um, to, to maintain that wealth tax in place. But I think what he was trying to do was to around the edges say, okay, we have made nonetheless some mistakes. Uh, and you can see that in a lot of sort of small policy uh, details. For example, if you go back to what set the Gilets Jaunes off in the first place, it wasn't just the petrol tax, uh, carbon tax on petrol. It was also bringing down the uh, speed limit on these country roads from 90 kilometers an hour to uh, 90 kilometers an hour to 80. And that was seen as, uh, you know, as a sort of victimization of people who depended on their cars and, and nip up and down on these rural roads all over France uh, at, bre at sort of breathtaking speeds. That Macron said we, he would, you know, review, and now there's talk about leaving each, letting each department um, make, make its own mind up. Now, you, you could say that, that that's what they should have been doing anyway, but in a centralized country like France, it's quite, uh, you know, that, that's, that's often not, not, not the way that it actually uh, happens. But I think, um, so I think, in answer to your question, yes, he said, I'm not going to under, my underlying strategy. I believe in it. I think this is what France needs. But what I'm going to do is on the margins. And maybe that's where there's a sense of, of, of inevitable frustration. Okay, we, we can leave aside the question of whether, whether Theresa May is going to propose closing Oxford University. But uh, let me ask you, since you're in this country now, whether you think there is any lesson from the Macron mold breaking for what's happening in British politics. That's uh, such a good question. And, you know, I think when... Um, 
when Bacon started out with this idea of en marche, he had understood something, you know, conceptually about the way in which politics was changing and the idea that uh, the central sort of dividing line in politics was no longer between left and right, but it was uh, uh, between those who believed ultimately in a sort of pro-European future, broadly open to free market, broadly open to immigration, sort of but an open-minded sort of model of, of, the way, um, uh, of the way a society ought to be organized. And then the sort of nationalist, uh, put up borders, build walls sort of vision of, 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 uh, of society. And that was the central dividing line he thought needed, was the, was the sort of the way in which the future was going to uh, organize itself and he wanted to bring about that realignment uh, along a different sort of uh, axis. It, conceptually it's all very well to say that's the case and I'm sure that it's the case in the UK that you have uh, on the centre left and the centre right enough people and, uh, who have the same sort of pro-European uh, belief exactly as there was in France. But you don't you can't just have it existing conceptually. You know what happened in France was uh, the timing was right uh, the, uh, and the person was right. You have to have a character, a person with the, charism the charisma and the sense of utter self-belief, which Macron clearly has, that will do that. And if you don't have the two, then the conceptual understanding that, yes, there ought to be this centre ground is just not, not enough. And I, I, I think, you know, you can't, you can't create en marche unless you have Macron to do it. Yes, and sadly we have nothing but Change UK. <laughs> Right, let me take uh, questions in groups of three, if you don't mind. Uh, as I said, wait for the microphone because we're, we're recording this and uh, be as short as possible. I'll start with the lady in the front and then gentleman over there. Now, over here first. Thank, thank you. It was, uh, I, I, th I thought you did a good coverage Votre of nom, Oh, plaît. sorry, my name, Corinne Kater. I live in England since 35 years, and, um, and more, obviously, I'm French. And I go to France. <laughs> I, I go to France very often. So very often, I find that there is a different a view uh, by the English people of France than when you arrive in France and you hear the French talking. Um, I took part uh, in that grand débat in London because there was one, at least in London, but I'm sure there were there were some organized in other uh, places, towns in England, and I was quite impressed. Um, I was impressed because actually all the questions which were asked by the few people who were there, which is quite a shame, actually French people, were exactly the same as when I went uh, back to France two months after, and they were the national question asked. Um, one of the things that um, you, um, in fact, it's not a question that I'm saying, that I'm asking, but um, you did not mention that one of the proposals by the French people was to, during a mandate, to have this sort of national debate where the deputies are giving their time to the population of the country for answering or trying to deal with the problems. And then after, for the president or the prime minister to deal with them. And I think I've never seen that throughout my life. 
a president who comes at the level and gives its politician the time for its population to deal with the problem instead of organizing a referendum or even worse, uh, an election. But that, that, that so we, we can ask Sophie to comment on this as a political innovation. If yeah. Is it possible to have that in England? But you did answer okay. no. <laughs> Second question up here, please. Uh, so, over, uh, Andrew Smith, and I'm not French, by the way. Um, so, uh, over here we had the, the uh, fuel protests, um, which, uh, what was it, five, ten years ago? I can't remember. Uh, which I remember at the time were pretty bloody scary. Five years ago, it was Tony Blair was in time. Yeah, I mean, they were pretty scary. They, they looked like, you know, these guys could do damage. And um, obviously, Blair, and ever since, they've stopped any rise in, in petrol tax. That, you know, it's completely destroyed any, any possibility of increasing taxes on petrol. Uh, has and, and obviously now we're in a different um, um, climate with you know with the extinction rebellion. Uh, so just just wait because we're recording everything. Just 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 wait so, so we can hear it. So has the Gilet Jaune um, destroyed any chance of uh, increasing uh, fuel taxes like the fuel protested over here? Is there a third question for this round? Yeah, over here, please. Hello, Ian Johnston. Um, I, one thing you didn't mention was the Benalla affair. Um, and I was wondering with, even despite, even if the Gilets Jaunes movement hadn't come to pass, was the shine already coming off? Um, and were the cracks already there for Macron? Okay, over to you, Sophie. I might start with that one. I, I, do, do read the book because I wrote, I updated it in February this year uh, to try and take the story forward uh, in the period from, well, basically the year 2018 and, and um, the beginning of this year. And for me, I think that the turning point indeed in when there was a, the perception change for Macron is actually happened between France winning the World Cup um, in July 2018, and then about three days later, the Banana Affair breaking. And just, just say that it's uh, his bodyguard who was f found to be beating up protesters. Yes, sorry, um, exactly. And um, this, the, the reason that this was, uh, I mean, obviously the facts spoke for themselves, but it was also very poorly handled because uh, he was initially given a, just a, a, a suspension and, and then it wasn't until it became a sort of big media story that the Elise finally uh, conceded that he had to go. Uh, so I think that, that there was that shift that took place very much uh, over those period of days. I mean, it's amazing in retrospect that France wasn't able, or that Macron wasn't able to capitalize on an incredible national feeling behind the World Cup victory. And it was, it, it dissipated and, and then evaporated within, within days because of the banana affair. Um, so I think that did raise questions. It raised questions which I suppose can't become for me part of the whole question of the governing style. You know, I I talked a little bit about Jupiterian presidency and that perception of a kind of tight-knit group around the president, but the banana and affair was, in a way was also part of that. It was, uh, they raised questions about how, uh, whether that close circle that had been behind him and had enabled En Marche to uh, be so successful as a vehicle for, an, for a campaign and for an election, then was that the right sort of way of running a presidency? You know, could you just rely on that tiny circle or is that actually uh, 
in a way, um, sort of setting yourself up for those sorts of uh, what looks very much like kind of c c closing ranks whenever there's whenever there's a, uh, some form of, of um, you know uh, misbehaviour or or, uh, or or scandal. Um, so that I agree with you on banana and do read, do read the book uh, car, on the carbon tax it's a really interesting one and obviously the UK is a, is, is a good case the, the, uh, the paradox is of course that the government was trying to do something which has to be right which is to increase to discourage car use uh, and, and introduce a, an environmentally friendly form of taxation I think the difficulty was that um, where it all went wrong was partly timing it was just as oil rise oil, oil, world oil prices were rising so you had this you know, combination of the higher tax and rising oil prices, which was, you know, not the government's fault, but it was that was unfortunate. Where they could have thought it through more carefully, I think, was about comp some form of compensation. You know, it's not difficult to work out some way of making sure that those who are, you know, some sort of means-tested uh, way of, of making sure that those who are dependent on their cars to get to work uh, have some, you know, have some kind of there's some sort of income support for that. But that was that was missing from the from the policy and I think that was where um, the, the, the sort of gilet jaune grievance that these policies are dreamt up in cities like Paris where people have metros and uh, scooters and electric bikes and uh, don't understand what it's like to be dependent on the car it, it, you felt they had a point because you know that is a, a fuel price isn't isn't the, a, the petrol price increase doesn't seem to doesn't doesn't touch that sort of population um, and then on the citizens' assemblies, was it citizens' assemblies you were thinking of, or? No, 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 Yes, yes. But can I, can I no, 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 please, you asked your question. I, no, I was just going to, I, I, just about, as a broader comment, I, I think that we will look back at this event and we will, at this sort of exercise and see it as a really interesting case study in how do you diffuse a really threatening social protest and is there some way in which allowing people, you know, what you said I think was it was represented by lots of people who took part, that they felt that there was something really useful about this, that was, it was, they were, it was, it was important to, 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 be, to participate in this conversation. It was important to take part. 1.9 million people filled in, uh, answered those questions that you mentioned online. That's a lot of people. Um, and so I think, yes, you know, the, uh, the idea that the president listens, that the government listens, is, is, is absolutely crucial. And it was, it was missing during those, um, during those, those early, the, the first 18 months of the Macron presidency. And it's, he's gone some way with this exercise, I think, to meeting that, uh, to you, that. Do you think it's actually a, uh, an innovation in French politics is here to stay? Well, we'll see. I mean, it certainly does Macron promise that. I don't see how he can repeat that exercise, spending 92 hours uh, listening to people. Um, but if he can do that, even on a sort of more regular basis, then I think that will. That, that he, he has said that he is going to make sure that, there's, that things are now done differently, and that's part of that exercise. So he's set himself the standard. Okay, let's, let's go for another round of questions. One here and one, one there to begin with. Thanks. Um, I'm Leo Bo. I'm Swiss uh, from a 10-minute bike, um, from a, a village 10 minutes away by bike from the French border. Um, I was wondering uh, where your scepticism or how your scepticism ranks among people who are drawn to the RN. Um, and, and how it fits in their psyche, and if you could draw perhaps any comparisons with what you know of what's happening in the UK. 
Okay, the second question here. Hi, uh, I'm Corley. I'm a student at the European Institutes. Um, and uh, you talked a little bit about the um, relationship between Macron and Mer uh, Merkel. And uh, it feels like Macron has sort of alienated a lot of his uh, potential partners, potential centrist and liberal partners at the European level, for example, by refusing for a long time to, um, to join with the ALDE coalition. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about whether or not this might also have been an oversight and a problem in his presidency. One question somewhere up here, yes. So I see, I interpret, Please. pardon? Oh, uh, Augustus. Yeah, I'm Augustus. I, I interpret this uh, grand debat, and I think you sort of agreed with that, as a response with, uh, for, with the immediate consequences of the Gilajal movement, with the resentment. But have we seen any structural reforms uh, by Emmanuel Macron uh, to address, let's say, the generational problems that are there. And just to sort of let you on the way, um, we could agree basically that part of the problems behind rise in populism is are the, let's say, um, the way older generations deal with the fastly changing society and uh, you know the spike in inequality. I'm not saying that there must be some kind of radical decision for that, but have we seen a structural uh, uh, response? And also, are the proposal for European Union by Macron can be seen as one of those? Okay. Um, so Euroscepticism and the RN. I think it's a really interesting switch that's taken place in Marine Le Pen and her policy on Europe. If you go back to 2017, uh, she was, it was always a little bit ambiguous and she didn't like to be clear deliberately, but she was sort of in favor of leaving the euro without quite saying so and had complicated schemes for pegging the euro to whatever the new thing she was going to introduce was. But anyway, she was broadly Eurosceptic uh, against, uh, in favor of leaving the euro. And after the UK uh, referendum results, she had a, ba a poster made up of um, uh, handcuffs under the word Frexit and sort of next us, and the handcuffs were being bust apart. So she was playing on the whole idea of Frexit. And she was very much doing that under the guidance of Florian Philippot, who was her uh, sort of chief strategist at the time. Now, since then, uh, he's left and gone off and created his own party. Uh, she is now, has retreated to, I think, a much more, a much less uh, it's, it's not a Eurosceptic position in terms of wanting to either leave the Euro or, the, or Europe, but what it is is to change Europe from within. And that's partly because of the departure of this le le uh, lieutenant, but also um, because I think that she sees she has now uh, friends in government in other countries in Europe, notably in Italy, and she thinks that if she and her friends can occupy power rather than just be a protest movement, then that they can create this, they can change Europe from within and create it into the sort of Europe of nations. That's the, her slogan. Whatever that means. I mean, it sounds quite gaullist, actually. But, um, you know, we're never quite sure what she really means in terms of policy. But certainly now her, her position is, is not outwardly. It's not in favor of leaving the European Union. It's in, change, in favor of changing the European Union. And that's a really big shift. Um, Merkel. 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating because if you go back to the beginning, um, Macron he, he set everything on the Franco-German relationship. Um, he, his prime minister, Edouard Philippe, went to the Lycée in Bonn. Um, his diplomatic advisor, Philippe Etienne, came from, he was ambassador to, to Berlin. Uh, he had uh, Sylvie Goulard, who was his defense minister in the first government, was um, a German speaker, fluent German speaker, knew, knew German, the German establishment very well. He really did, I think, Macron believe that there was, if there was a way of pursuing those European ambitions he had, it was to do it through the Franco-German relationship. And it was to do it by restoring French credibility at what he saw was a, in what he saw was a very lopsided relationship. Uh, and and he, he, he laid it out very clearly. I mean, even when he was economy minister, he used to say, it's very straightforward. The French do 50 billion euros of savings, and uh, we get our budget deficit back under control, and then the Germans will spend 50 billion. Uh, it's very simplistic, but that was effectively the sort of, the sort of deal he wanted. Um, and in the, first, in the first year, he, 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 I think the view in Paris was that he kept to his word. In other words, he brought the deficit down below 3% for the first time in a decade. He started reforming the French economy. He brought in the labor reforms. He did what he was, what he promised to do. And then where was the German response? So I think the frustrations in Paris come, uh, a, a, a great deal of that frustration is because they feel that uh, they did their homework and uh, Berlin didn't respond. But as you said, you know, was it not a mistake in some respects to focus so much on that Franco-German relationship? Um, because uh, in the process, Macron did irritate or has irritated uh, other member states. I think he is beginning to shift a little bit on that. If you see... Um, Yesterday, for example, uh, he had the Portuguese Prime Minister over at the Elysee, and they were looking very, you know, they, they had they had a, a, a they had a, a very good sort of chemistry going between them. He has invited Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, to dinner the other day in a restaurant in Paris. He's been, I think, uh, building and trying to build relationships out way and beyond the, uh, the Franco-German axis in order to try and sort of broaden um, his, his alliance building within Europe. It's, it's still a very difficult time for him. I agree with you absolutely on that and, and has been... Uh, but, but, you know, the, 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 the macro that I kind of... Under, that I think I've understood is not someone who's going to give up just because he hasn't got anywhere. I don't think he's going to sit there and wait for Merkel to leave and he will just keep going and try different strategies. He's pragmatic. He will try and build, build other sorts of uh, alliances in order to try and get somewhere on some of those ideas. And there was a third thing was about structural, structural reform and whether or not um, anything he's done what was the question about? Uh, about the gilets jaunes and structural reforms. Has he done anything on, on structural reforms? I mean, I think, I, I'm not quite sure what you mean by structural reform, but if, if I'm looking at what he thinks the French economy needs and what needs to be done in terms of uh, reforming it, you know, he would say, I've done, I've done labor reform. I've done, I'm in the process of doing uh, education reform. There's a big reform coming up, which is pensions. It's absolutely massive, uh, very ambitious. It's an attempt to try and reorganize the entire system. There are about 32 different pension schemes in France. It's just a, a, a it's just sort of 
unimaginable um, complexity and he wants to create a points-based system so that which is fair and transparent and which everyone sees exactly what they put in and exactly what they're going to get out of the system. But that is, is really complicated and it's politically difficult because it touches absolutely everybody. It's not like an SNCF reform. Um, so everyone has a stake in a pension um, and is, is, is a pensioner or is going to be one someday and it will be very difficult to put in place. But if, if that's what you mean by structural reform, perhaps you don't, that these are, these are plans that he has to try and, um, uh, you know, put, put, get, get the sort of French, get the French economy and get the French uh, public sector back on, back on, um, you know, back on track. Let, let me add a, a follow-up to the second question. He picked a fight with, or maybe the other way around, Salvini picked a fight with him. I asked uh, Nathalie Loiseau about this when she was here, and she said, oh, this is, this is frippery, we don't really care about this. But has, has his propensity to alienate some of the other leaders been damaging to his standing in France? Um as opposed to his European project? No, I, I, don't, I, don't think it, I don't think it has really. I think what, you know, what you see, um, I think that initially at any rate, what, they, what the French liked was having France taken seriously. I think that was a moment when, and that, that was not just a European po policy, it was, uh, they like having um, uh, their president received at the White House and, you know, having standing ovation when he spoke to Congress, uh, inviting Putin to Versailles and giving him the, the handshake. Um, it, I think all of that, yeah, all, all of that initially went down well because it, it, it felt, you felt as if France was being taken seriously on the world stage, that France was a player, that France had a, a voice that was being listened to. Um, I think that the, the difficulty has been, you know, where's, what's the return been for all those uh, for all those sort of efforts to reach out. Uh, there hasn't been much of a return in terms of the Franco-German relationship. There hasn't been much of a return in, 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 in terms of the uh, efforts to, to, to sort of tame Trump. Remember that phrase, uh, the Trump whisperer that people used when Macron first went to Washington. Well, nobody uses that anymore. Um, Trump has uh, pulled out of the uh, Paris climate deal, pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. It's, um, there is very little there to, to, to see. When, when I, when I um, interviewed Macron last year uh, in the second interview for my book, he, he told me that he actually liked Trump. And I write about this because he, he, tried, he was making this case for how um, the two of them have a lot in common. They were both outsiders who didn't, come in, who didn't grow up in politics, that, that took on the establishment, that had never been elected before, that won the presidency at their first attempt. And he felt that there was a kind of connection there. Um, and I think he really did think he could use that connection to have some sort of influence over, over Trump on a very personal level. And and, you know, that hasn't really happened. So there is, uh, I think, more of a, I would say, a frustration that all of that theatre that seemed to exist in the first sort of six or 12 months of the Macron presidency hasn't necessarily had that much to, to show for it in terms of concrete results. All right, let's take another round of questions. You were first. And one right at the back. Here in the middle. Ladies, you're, you're underrepresented in the question so far, so you'll be next. So, John, John Grumbar is my name. I uh, graduated from the LSE before Macron was born. 
Um, I'm British, but I have a French mother, and I spent a lot of time in France. Speaking to a lot of French people, I think they're the first to admit that as a race, they're pretty much ungovernable. Um, revolution every so many years, very, very difficult to handle. But in the same breath, they say that if anybody can turn us around, it's, it's Macron. Can I ask you, I haven't read your book, what is your conclusion? And do you think that he's going to manage to do it, i.e., will he succeed and will he be re-elected one day? And if he's not, what do you think could be the outcome? Nothing trivial there, then. Hi, Ed Jones. Um, whenever I go to France outside Paris, I'm always still quite shocked how much relatively moderate people actually dislike Macron. Um, how much of his decline in popularity do you think is due to what was clearly a implicitly miscalculated Jupiterian style? And how much is it that a still fundamentally protectionist French public just didn't understand his Macron's manifesto when he was elected? Or to put it another way, how much of his problems are due to style and how much substance? The third question was over here. Uh, thanks very much. My name's Adela Gooch. Um, what lessons are there from the Macron phenomenon and subsequent experience for Brexit Britain? In theory, we're a sort of evolutionary, not a revolutionary society. But some of the factors you describe are present, you know, anti-elite, anger, politicians with a sense of entitlement. I mean, how many old Etonian prime ministers do we have to have? People in the periphery angry. So how would you equate those two? Thank you. Some challenging not, questions for you. Yes, I'm not sure I, I heard the third one, but, but I, let me answer the first ones. Uh, can Macron be re-elected? Is it, um, what, what's, uh, what's the chance of it working out? Um, I would urge you to read my book. <laughs> the last chapter, I, I, I wrote around the interview I, I had with him last year, and it was all about um, what I think is... It was trying to answer that question. I don't think it's impossible for him to be re-elected, but I think it's, it's going to be challenging. A lot of it will depend on what happens in, the, in terms of the alternative opposition uh, offering. At the moment, the Socialist Party, as I, as I tried to, to suggest, is, is really a shadow of its, of its former self, and it's very difficult to see quite how... Uh, that party could recover in time. They've had to sell their uh, headquarters on, on the left bank. They've moved to a suburb south of Paris. They haven't got any money, uh, and they are in really in disarray. Uh, the Republicans have taken a position under Laurent Vauquier, which is uh, really on the sort of nationalist side of the, of the conservative right, um, and that has left a lot of the moderates feeling homeless or decamping to En Marche. So much has been successful in kind of crushing the, the, the alternative opposition. And it's difficult to see uh, from the mainstream where, where that would come from. Um, you then have to say, what are the chances of a candidate like Marine Le Pen uh, winning the presidency? I mean, you have to ask that question. Uh, we did ask it in 2017, and there was some concern that that might happen. It's very difficult with a two-round system uh, for it to happen because you have to have a 50% majority. It's not a parliamentary system like in the UK. Um, and I think Marine Le Pen in 2017, well, she did. She hit a ceiling, and her ceiling was 33%. We know what the ceiling was because that's the score she got. Uh, but times change, you know, and um, it might not even be Marine Le Pen. What if it's her niece? What if it's Marion Le Pen? Um, Marion Maréchal Le Pen, who in some respects doesn't have 
even the baggage Marine Le Pen has and the associations with her grandfather is, you know, is, is, is she, she can she can take even a kind of even more of a step away from from the sort of uh, the, the negative associations that her grandfather has. Um, so. I don't think it's impossible for Macron to be re-elected. He'd, he'd have to want to be re-elected. Uh, I think that, you know, when you think what you have to go through <laughs> as a president these days, and the Gilets jaunes experience has been really, you could see he was really rattled by it at the end of last year. Uh, he was pale. He was... Uh, he started to have grey hair. You know, he, he, he had aged, I think, at the beginning of that crisis. Uh, and you have to want to do it. I think he's a, someone who's driven by ideas and convictions. I don't think he's driven by raw desire for power. Um, there's obviously a sense of an element of narcissism about him. I don't think you can go into politics at that level without being driven by a bit of narcissism. But I don't think it's about raw power. I think he has ideas. I think he really does believe he can make a difference. He's got certainly not um, any problem with self-doubt about his capacities. Um, but he would want, he'd have to want, to want to do it, and, he'd also, and Brigitte would also want to have to want him to do it. She'd have to <laughs> be, uh, be ready for that as well. So it's been a, a, a quite a, 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 an ordeal, I would say, for her as First Lady living through the Gilets Jaunes. The, the amount of personal loathing expressed on the streets uh, towards her has also been pretty intense. So um, I think it, he, it's possible, but we are three years away. And three years before the last election, you know, no one was even suggesting that Macron could be a candidate. So one has to be very careful and probably a little bit humble about uh, making predictions at this point. Um, Jupiter, who asked about Jupiter? Yes, of course. Um, was it style or was it not understanding? I, I mean, I have to say a bit of both. It's, I don't think you can say it's just one or the other, but one of the things, and it certainly was style, was a big element to it. But one of the things that really m mystified me, I think, during the first 12 months, during which uh, Macron's government was very much perceived as governing um, from the, almost from the right, and partly because Edouard Philippe had come from the right, the Prime Minister, Bruno Le Maire, the Finance Minister had come from the right. So there was a sense that sort of the big decisions were being taken by um, a government that looked as if it was coming from the right. But what, what, and what I think he, he, Macron really missed an opportunity to do in those first 12 months was to balance that perception, which was all about tax cutting on companies, ab ab abolishing the, um, the wealth, ta wealth tax, with some of the things he was doing, which were much more, I thought, from the centre-left. And I would take his education policy. It was an absolutely classic case of that. If you look what he was doing, uh, what he was doing for uh, primary schools, so he, in, in all uh, areas that were classified as underprivileged areas, he uh, halved class sizes for uh, five and six-year-olds, so in Sipi uh, uh, and Siwan uh, for the primary school. And that meant uh, dividing the class for having a class going from a class with 24 pupils to 12 and I went up to Calais to which is a very poor town actually in France with very high poverty rate and I went to visit some of these uh, primary schools and the difference for a primary school teacher teaching 24 and 12 is just unbelievable and they were they were they, this was a pilot school that had put this in place a year early to see whether it made a difference it has for 
in some, for some reason, and I don't really know what the answer to, the, what the explanation is for that, uh, Macron, Macron or, or his team weren't able to balance the perception that they were governing for the rich with, um, with, with the policies they were putting in place, which were all about investing in human capital and trying to kind of open up opportunities uh, for people over the long term in a way that wasn't going to be electorally paying for them because if you invest in a primary uh, school education at that age, it's never going to pay off in time for you to benefit from it politically. But I thought it was absolutely crucial and corresponding in my mind with, his, with, with, with the fact that he is ultimately comes from a social democratic tradition. He, it doesn't come from the right. Uh, but that perception wasn't, wasn't really, wasn't, wasn't either understood or well uh, explained. Uh, and the last question I couldn't hear. Last, last question was partly about Brexit again. Yeah. But whether, if I interpret you correctly, whether it's, it's breaking the elite system of old Etonians and the, the, those who run the country in the way that, that Macron appeared to do in France. And I say appeared because he is one of them. Whether Brexit is doing that. Could do. Could do. Could we see a similar kind of revolution here? <coughs> Gosh, okay. I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I feel very nervous commenting on anything that's going on in the UK. I, I, I feel very, too, too removed from it um, to really understand. We changed in the last and, 20 minutes anyway. Yeah, I, and I, <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I, I come, I come to, to London and I, 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 already I can't believe that the only subject of conversation is Brexit because, of course, you know, if you're not in the UK, nobody talks about Brexit. Um, I mean, there is not a subject of conversation. It, it is for about 24 hours every time the UK asked for another extension, and then the French talk about it for, for 24 hours, and then it's forgotten. So this campaign is, is in, 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 uh, for the European election. In 27 countries, the campaign is not about Brexit. Um, so I don't know. I can't really, I, I don't feel qualified to, to, to say that, but I think that the point that Ian just made is, is crucial. That you know, Macron was, in a way, and the reason I used, and I tried to explain why I used the word revolution, was breaking the grip of the established parties. But one always has to remember that he was doing it as the sort of ultimate insiders outsider. He was still an ENARC who had gone to ENARC, who went to the Inspection de Finance in, in, the, in the Finance Ministry, which is the sort of creme de la creme when you come out of ENARC. And therefore he was in a way, although uh, an outsider, he was, comes from Amiens, he's not a Parisian, he doesn't, he wasn't brought up with sort of in, in, a, in a mansion like Marine Le Pen was, um, <laughs> but uh, he was nonetheless uh, very early on, you know, f found his way inside the establishment. So he is is if he's trying to break the grip, he's doing it as a sort of as a as, as a as a very much the outsider's insider or the insider's outsider. So you, you remind me of one of my visits to the European Parliament, where I was waiting for a lift, and out came Jean-Marie Le Pen, who sort of knocked me over, being a paratrooper. Following day, I went to the same lift and I was knocked over by Ian Paisley. <laughs> right, one last round of questions. I think the first one was here, and then we have two more. Um, can, uh, can I ask a question about... Tell us who you are. Oh, sorry, yeah, my name's Luke Hilliard, and I was just interested in uh, hearing a bit more about Macron's uh, economic successes and failures, because I think the sort of perception here, perhaps, is that his liberalising agenda hasn't invigorated the French economy to the extent that you know, he possibly suggested he was going to do. Um, so I'd be interested in hearing if that perception is accurate, uh, and also if it does, if it isn't successful, what prospect is there of, a, to, uh, of that vacuum that you talked about on the political left in France being filled 
either by the socialists or by some alternative force a la Podemos in Spain or Corbyn in the UK? Hi. Um, one of Macron's big successes... Again, tell us who you are. Hi, I'm Hugo, and I actually know uh, her uh, from back home in Paris. And one of the Macron's big successes was uh, convincing lots of the young people to vote for him in 2017. And a big issue he says with that was because of the university protests. And I was wondering how he was going to convince or go back to being very successful with the young people in the next three years. And uh, last question at the front here, please. Hi, Jeremy Henderson. Um, read the book, enjoyed the book. Slightly gutted there's already a new edition. Um, I, there are a couple of stories... That it's got ha- half the price of the hardbacks. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great pitch. Um, the, I, the, a couple of things that got real traction over here, I thought, were the, telling the guy to go and get a job in the restaurant over the road and the Manu uh, comment, both of which I just thought were unbelievable and I think would be very hard to survive if you made those kind of comments over here in that kind of position. I wondered how they played out in Paris and in France and what do you think he's playing at? Um, thank you. So, uh, who asked the question about the economics? Uh, you did, yes. Um, right, I would say that uh, one of the reasons I talked about the labour market statistics earlier on is that I think that there are signs that actually he has precisely, in terms of job creation, had an impact already on the French economy. Jobs, job, a high rate of unemployment in France has been a long, long-standing problem. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's it's high unemployment for young people in particular, and this 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 problem of having uh, so many jobs that are created created being on short-term contracts. So people moving from city day to city day, all you know, you can spend ten years on those before you get a permanent job offer. City day is a contrat durée déterminée, short-term contract. A short-term, thank you very much, a short-term contract. And this has been um, the, 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 the signs that this is already changing. Is it could be a huge huge benefit to the French economy that. You you can actually see half of those new jobs coming through now in term, in per, as permanent contracts. So it's a big change, and it's something that is, is very micro. And I agree with you that it's hardly commented on at all. It's certainly not commented on in France. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I had to dig this, these figures out. And uh, the, the headline unemployment rate is commented on, and that has been going down. It's now, uh, it's now um, uh, at, at its lowest level for over a decade, and it's, uh, it's, it's been on a trajectory which has been downward, despite the fact that growth is slowing. One of the reasons growth is slowing is that the general environment is, is slowing. I mean, the eurozone's been slowing. The global economy's been slowing. There's trade wars between China and U.S. That's not Macron's fault, but it hasn't been helpful to him. But I think if you have a difficult or slowing economic environment, and despite that, you're managing to turn something around in the job market, then that's really quite interesting. So I would say really look closely at those labor market statistics and let's see what happens and if this is whether this is sustainable or not to see whether that reform has, has, has had an impact. That's, that's the sort of first, that's the main one I think you would expect to see a, a result in. There's also going to be stimulus from all these income tax cuts and the income support measures in 10 billion in, in, in um, December, 5 billion announced most recently at this press conference. That is a big stimulus into the French economy. So there will be some, I think, some uh, sort of sort of more uh, consumer spending coming through and helping on that front. So I think there is there is an element of reinvigoration of the economy and it isn't being it isn't really being being uh, written about. That is definitely true. 
And the vacuum on the left, that was your question as well. Yes, I think that, well, there is already a Jeremy Corbyn in, the, in France called uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He's just not in the Socialist Party, so he's got his own party. Interestingly, if you look at who's managing to benefit from the Gilets jaunes protest in terms of established political figures, it's not him. You would expect it to come from, for him and Marine Le Pen equally to benefit from, at least I would. But it's, it's, she's the one who's been benefiting from that anti-establishment vote, not him. So he has been a, a big big player in, 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 in French politics, not one that's had a chance at the presidency, but nonetheless, a sort of, you know, he got nearly 20% at the presidential election in, in 2017. So he has, he has already played a big role, but not within the Socialist Party. Uh, Hugo, young people, um, I think that the most interesting subject on which, which will test whether or not he can bring young people on board, and you're absolutely right that there was that sense of, you know, because I suppose Macron himself was young, although you might not have felt he was young, but he was younger than most politicians who stand for election, uh, he did get a lot of younger, younger voters interested in politics. The subject for me is, is the environment. If he can get that right, and he has really, I think, evolved hugely on this subject. I don't think he was naturally... Uh, had naturally made it a priority. And in, uh, one of the things I did when I wrote my book was to go back on uh, and look at all the notes from all the interviews I'd done with him from the years when I first met him in 2012 when he was an advisor to Francois Hollande in the presidency. And uh, when I was trying to stitch that all together and find it, look for a pattern, uh, he, he, environmental policy was not something that was central to his thinking at all. And I think even during the election in 2017, it wasn't a sort of major cam campaign theme for him. But he has really adopted it. He's adopted it. He's really kind of come a long way in, in understanding how crucial that is. And I think that's been partly because of the contacts he's had. Whenever he goes and talks to groups of young people, it's the first subject everyone wants to talk about. Uh, so I think if he, if they, if he is going to find a way of, of um, connecting and sort of generating enthusiasm and a bit more faith, then it's probably going to be through, through, through envir the environment. And the last question was about the offensive comment. Um, I, I do write about this because I think it was part of what was going wrong and the sort of uh, disillusion that was setting in even before the Gilets jaunes. We talked about uh, the Benalla affair being, being one and, and these comments. Um, and I think one of the things that Macron has, uh, it took him too long to do, was to apologize for any of that. He, you watched the press conference. He, he, he sort of came as close as you're ever going to see, I think, to an apology. And he said, you know, if, if I've wounded people, then, then, that, then that was wrong. It was, it was that sort of apology. It's not quite saying, you know, I, that, that was really awful. But it was saying, if, if it hurt people, then it was, uh, that's not, wasn't my intention. Um, I misspoke. <laughs> I misspoke, or you misunderstood. Um, so I think, I think he has come, he has tried, it, it took a long time. When you talk to people last year, uh, during the, the period when he was making those comments, and you talk to people around him, I think there was a feeling that he didn't understand how much that was wounding people. What the Gilets jaunes protest did, and, and what some of the expressions of, of grievances during the whole great debate did was, I think, bring that all home uh, to how, how upsetting and wounding some of those comments have been and how offensive. It's interesting that he hasn't made any quite that of that nature since... Well, since the Gilets jaunes protests began. I mean, I, do you remember last year they were coming out once a week? I mean, it was just almost like clockwork. He hasn't. So, you know, I think there is, there is sort of evidence that perhaps he's taken that on board and is 
being more careful in what he says and and has un, and they're a bit behaving in a, with a bit more humility and a bit more understanding a bit more humanity and it's always been very surprising to me because in 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 person and in one-on-one -on -one meetings with him he has huge amount of empathy with with other people he is unlike when you interview him it's unlike interviewing a, a normal usual politician i've interviewed a lot of politicians and on the whole they always give you the impression that they've got somewhere better to do to be and they look at their watch and then they sort of fiddle with their phone and he doesn't have that so he has an ability to focus and you can see it even on the interview he gave on the Andrew Marr show I think in January last year you could see that you can see the sort of engagement with questions and and and, um, and a real kind of uh, a real empathy in those sorts of situations but he didn't he doesn't show that when he's in contact with people but that the, the great debate uh, changed that the respect that he showed individuals and having sat through the six hours when we sat on our white plastic chairs for six hours until midnight um, listening to that you can see it it was a, it was a change so I think there has been a shift. Okay, let, let me ask you one concluding question where I'll try to prize you off from sitting on the fence. <laughs> the next French presidential election will be in three years' time, almost exactly three years' time. Who do you think will be sitting in the Elysee in July 2022? Well, I only sat on the fence because uh, we have learned our lesson about predicting things in France. Um, and that if you think back to three years before 2017, um, that was when, uh, you know, a young economy minister didn't look like a future president. So I think one has to be very careful. Uh, it's, I don't think it's fence-sitting. I think it's um, a prudent, uh, prudence in the face of sort of empirical experience. Um, but... Uh, I, he has a chance. He has a chance of, of winning. But uh, I, I, I and, and I think that you know you can begin to construct a scenario under which he would he, he could find a path to the presidency again. Uh, you certainly I wouldn't have said that in December last year. I wouldn't have even said it in January last year. There were moments when one felt that he wasn't even going to survive this presidency. He wasn't even going to remain in, physically remain in power. Um, but I think you can now start to start to see uh, a path to a scenario in which possibly he would um, he, he, he could be reelected. But I say that with a lot of caveats. And uh, I, I think, you know, who, who was it who said that the French are ungovernable and rebellious? And of course they are. And their history has been full of it has been made of rebellion and and revolution and um, distrust of governing the governing class. So I think one has to with, when it comes to France, be uh, you, one owes the country a huge dose of humility when it comes to any sort of predictions. I think we just about came off the fence. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Sophie, and I hope you'll join me in thanking Sophie for a very entertaining and illuminating lecture. <laughs>